Hi, I'm Bryn Thompson. This is the Coburn Ventures Podcast. It's for clients, investors, our community of industry leaders, fellows, and friends. This is a group that loves the craft of investing, studies change, is dedicated to business analysis, and all that's behind the scenes of that work. I hope you enjoy it. For the next few episodes, we are going to be talking about rogue waves, the unpredictable disruptions brought by the quantum changes in connectivity and digital transformation. As investors, we hope to understand which companies and sectors will be highly adaptable in this age, and even which companies and sectors might help us through it, as the digital fairing companies did in the first portion of the digital revolution helping us migrate from one world to another. In the next few episodes, we'll dive deeper into what rogue waves are, and importantly, along with our friends, we will start developing a toolkit for increased understanding of how this will all relate to our investments and what new tools we may want. Our goal, to ride the waves. So let's get going. A few episodes ago, back in our conversation about digital transformation, Rudy Carson brought up a really helpful question. He was reflecting on a misjudgment he had had, and then he realized the origin of the misjudgment went all the way back to the metaphorical lens through which he was assessing the problem, his mindset or impression of the situation. He reminds us to ask ourselves, what are the lenses I'm using that are wrong or outdated or unhelpful? That's why we're here today with Zach Dykwald, founder of the Young China Group. We're here together because Zach is like a bridge between the world of China and the Western world. Almost every conversation I have with Zach is like a chance to take off the eyeglasses and if not change out the lenses to at least clean them off so that the way I look at the world is a little more likely to be a little more clear. So let's jump in. We've been in a series discussing rogue waves, this idea that we have unpredictable changes that are birthed by the quantum change in information and connectivity. And so today we asked Zach Dykewald to join us because of his perspective and experience on China. And Pip, will you just say a little bit more about some of the recent conversations that we've been having with Zach and and what we hope to pop up today. Yeah, I think Zach keeps helping me get uh, escaping from the prison of the reductionist um, orientation that I can have about China. And that's so helpful because we're kind of given a message and it's so reduced, it's soundbite, it's that we don't get to see a whole picture. And so Zach is hired by a lot of companies to provide a wider picture so they can run their businesses. So we, a, a few weeks ago, we just wanted to kind of dig into some China topics with small group of people. And the first thing, Zach, you said is, I think people in the West don't get the elections that are coming up. Could you give us just to get us started, can you give us just a, a brief background to that, because my reductionist view is elections, schlumections, or well, hopefully there's a better rhyme than that. Could you start with there and just take us, take us away? 
Absolutely. So first, thanks for having me as always. I, when I think about what people are missing the most when understanding the Chinese government, when I think about the, the sort of equations I see, you know, these the, the big brains in the West uh, and what variables they, they use to kind of crunch out a, hey, here's what's going to happen in China. The variable I see missing most is this idea uh, or the amount to which the, the government is beholden to its people, to which popularity matters. When we imagine author, uh, excuse me, autocratic governments like what we assume China is, and, and you know, especially now with everything going on in Russia, the comparisons between Russia and China are irresistible. But what people often miss is, is the, de the degree to which the Chinese government has to be popular. And so when we talk about elections, in October, November of this year, we have the party Congress approaching and the decision around will Xi Jinping have another term or not, which up until feels like a month ago was a foregone conclusion. Uh, that question will be asked and answered. And if you're trying to understand last year's summer storm, you know, that whiplash of, of regulatory uh, crackdown in China that affected tech, real estate, um, education, uh, kind of sector by sector. And if you're trying to understand even the very first thing Xi Jinping when he did when he came to, came to power, uh, which was anti-corruption, um, the, the lens that's most useful is not what's best for the economy. It's not what's best for business. It's what is most popular, what is pandering most to the political class, and when I say political class, I'm not referring to party members. I'm referring to what otherwise in any other economy will be considered voters. Imagine it as the mm, Chinese yeah. Rust Belt, the Chinese heartland. Most global investors, when they think about China, they focus on the consumer class and the business class. So the top quartile of China's economy, which has enough money, which has enough uh, uh, interest um, and, and sort of socioeconomic standing, to be able to move the needle on, on this real consumer revolution we've seen in the last uh, decade and really five years in China. Um, the people who are creating the incredible technology companies that are increasingly rivaling that of the West, but it's the bottom three quartiles of China that keep the CCP in power. And can you, is this a, just to dot, to punctuate that, and maybe we'll get to corruption as a topic later. There's so much to get to, but you mentioned the, the phrase way back when, 10 years ago, had to do something with swatting flies. And so here in the West, we sort of, or at least me, I can't speak for everyone, uh, corruption sounded like a high level thing. Can you explain the phrase swatting flies? Because that kind of connected, ah, they do really answer to that bottom 75% in quotes of, of society. The year was 2012. Xi Jinping was coming into power at the very, the very end of the year. And the very first thing he did was he started an initiative called Catching Tigers and Swatting Flies. It was the famous anti-corruption campaign. Now, Western media focused on the tigers, this idea that Xi Jinping was consolidating power at the top. He was eliminating his political rivals. Um, and tigers are great, but most people, if you can imagine life in a village, never really interact with, with tigers at all. You know, Bosi Lai was not, you know, the, the most famous tiger that, that, that fell to the crackdown beforehand, um, was not impacting most people's lives. But flies, these low-level officials whose palms you had to grease to get a permit to start a factory, 
who you felt like you had to bribe or spend half of your startup costs on cigarettes and Mao Tai, which is Baijiu, which is very intense liquor, um, in order to try to get your kid into the right job. It was those flies that were pestering everybody throughout the nation. There's great Pew research that reflects how this low level officials, the, the feeling that you had to know somebody to get ahead in China was that was the that was the issue that bothered the Chinese people most, more so, than pollution, more than so food. He was, he was attending to the day-to-day -day life of the average person in a way that we've kind of been reduced or conditioned to think of, let's say, Russia and auto, autocratic governments in a totally different way. So then we take this to COVID and what's happening in Shanghai right now. And you said something really interesting. I'll, I'll see if I paraphrase. A, the, the West does not understand the reverence for the elderly. It's kind of funny because in the, in the West, we kind of say we should respect our elders. And, and in China, they respect the elders <laughs> at the level that we think maybe we should. And because of that, zero COVID as a policy may not make sense in the US, but it is the reason why they went to zero COVID. It's not easy to retract. I think someone in the call said, so Zach, it would be like people in the West letting babies die. And I think, you know, someone said that's exactly what it is. So A, that, B, how the government is engaging with the average citizen. You sort of said the citizens would be okay because they understand the reverence for the elderly and those are the risk people but the abusive nature of what some of the execution of this strategy is really the problem and the big watch out. So we're kind of misinterpreting how the government is going towards this. Can you take that anywhere you want or clarify anything that I confused? Well, we often project, and just to finish the last thought, the idea is that Xi Jinping is very tuned into what's popular and popularity matters, and he does what's popular. Even the tech crackdowns and all the, the regulatory crackdowns in June, they were all extraordinarily popular. And that's something that we can, we can dive into in another time, but more than most people understand. And similar to zero COVID, we, we project what we expect the citizenry ought to feel in response to these sorts of approaches in ways that do not serve us as, as analysts, as people who are trying to understand perception in China. Um, and so up until, again, this last month, people in China thought China was winning COVID. Uh, and if you look at sort of the death count, if you look at even the economy, uh, there, there are real cases to be made for that. It's a morbid scoreboard, but it's one that the Chinese government pointed to often. By June of 2020, China was, was backed in the office. They were back in malls. They were eating out. They were hanging out with friends. And yes, there was this sort of tech superstructure around that, um, the ability to do that. Uh, but there was this sense that China was handling it better. Now, fast forward to this last month, and it's been the most epic breakdown of, of that perception, which was so carefully built and constructed that we've seen and, and or that we ever could have expected, much worse than I could have expected. And so there are times where Western sort of perception even often overemphasizes or, or over expects negative backlash to be in China. This is actually a rare instance of, of what feels like an underestimation of how bad things are there in terms of perception. Um, but yes, yeah, so elder, the respect for the elderly is one important threat. Uh, China has, doesn't have religion in a, in, a, in a similar way to what we have in the West, but they do have family. 
and caring for the elderly is um it, it's it it has a it has a it's a higher order um issue in china that that's a moral issue in ways that we can't quite understand outside of china um but also the the sort of national pride the, the crisis nationalism as as i've heard it called um china feels like it, it it's so much of the national um attitude building into the the party congress has been built on this idea that china has handled covid better and so now that there's this massive failure uh it's sort of against that and and the same with vaccine nationalism uh that china doesn't have an mrna vaccine has been like it, it's very difficult for the chinese government to walk back from those narratives they've so carefully and, and forcefully constructed over the last 18 months uh, can you say a little bit more about what the failure has been over the last month obviously We've all seen what's been going on in Shanghai, but I guess one of the things I'm wondering is in the States, I think it would be like um, if New York was shut down, but the rest of the country um, could go on as as they wanted to. I don't I think most of, you know, back to um, popularity in the heartland, I think that wouldn't be a problem. So can you just detail out a little bit more of what's going on with the breakdown is, you know, even beyond people the, uh, people in Shanghai? Yeah, the issue, so the issue isn't the shutdown. There have been blips of shutdown throughout China over the last two years. And it stinks. And it means that like business travel, you don't want to do it because you might get stuck in Chongqing for three weeks. But ultimately the shutdown isn't the issue. The issue is the, the depth of the shutdown and the failure of the logistical um, the capabilities of the government to take care of people. People were going without food. Uh, there was not enough rice. Uh, there, the, the ability for people to get medical treatment uh, if they needed it. There, there are these heart-wrenching stories of, of, of people who had non-COVID related illnesses, but because they couldn't get the right QR scan uh, and, the right, and the right code, their loved ones died waiting for that medical attention. Uh, people who, and, and you have to keep in mind in China, you have generations who survived famine and the cultural revolution. You have this cultural trauma that is so ever present in people's minds around scarcity and abuse of power, particularly when it goes to the basics, not like, can I go have a latte with my friends? Not, can I go on this business trip? But like, are we being, are, are the basics being taken care of? And that has been triggered in ways that I would never have expected. Um, I would you, see in China. You would also mention yeah. that in through social, you've seen incidences of abuse of pets and things like that. That kind of like we're okay shutting down in a way New York never would be. So don't compare the two. Right. But if you're if your mantra is like satisfying the people, and here you're seeing abuse that is running pretty rampant in social media, can't be totally locked down like it might be in North Korea that that's going to be a problem. It's been so catastrophically unempathetic that it's 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 a it's a failure that's 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 so severe and I, and I don't say that lightly like I'm not somebody who often is criticizing government I feel like I'm I'm often pushing the scales in the other direction trying to get people to see the the other uh perspective but it, it's been such a public failure. Um you know, there's an there's several instances of of workers who are trying to corral people's pets, and there's video of somebody like beating a corgi to death. Uh, you know, one of the one of the big whites, so the people in the in the hazmat suits, uh, and that's caught on video and circulates. Uh, it, it's been more public outcry 
to what's been perceived as the inhumane treatment of citizens. And again, much more than just, hey, you can't leave your home or it, it, it's, been, it's been a failure that has led to the, the questioning of the government in, in ways that we have not seen since so, Xi Jinping has been in power, including the initial COVID breakdown. And so to connect a couple pieces here, um, you had also talked about the, the failure of the vaccine relative to the West is well understood inside China. Um, it can't be, and that that's a knock on the, hey, our system's not perfect, but it's better than the West. And early, as you point out in COVID, it seemed like the government could support the idea that we got our act together, we know what we're doing. And now it's, and science, we're passing the West in science, we're passing the West in technology. Now that's kind of, you know, up, well, it seems like this is uh, on something that was really important, that's up for grabs. Bryn, bringing that back to one of the mantras that we use is, and JP, is now the power in the end node um, to understand, to be connected, to have information. It may not be as open as in the West, but it's so significant. At a time, governments are going to be asked to keep adapting and adapting and adapting and adapting under like public scrutiny in a, you know, each in their own way. It almost seems like it's harder for China to make the adaptations consistent with the pace of the world, change in the world than it might be in the West. I, I don't know. I, see, I, I struggle with that a lot because if take, let's, let's go back to 20, of course, but go let's ahead. go back to 2020. And obviously China is a 1.4 billion person nation. Uh, it, it's got, it, it's much more the elephant than, than a, a more lithe, nimble animal. But take us back to 2020 when China had a seismic failure in, in controlling and communicating the control of the disease, not to the world, but to its people. Um, the mistreatment of Dr. Li Wenliang, the, the whistleblower, the, uh, the Red Cross misappropriation of, of resources. Um, it was bad uh, and publicly bad. The amount of people talking and the, the upset throughout the country uh, was, again, size, it was seismic. It was, it, was, it was enormous. And then they pivoted on a dime, like truthfully, the, the, the speed at which they started uh, to address those issues, you know, publicly, and, and then there was a PR campaign with it, building a hospital in 10 days and live streaming it where millions of people were watching. And then again, come June of 2020, watching the failure of the rest of the world while China looked like it had it buttoned up. Again, the, the, the burden of the government isn't to be great, the, the burden is to be better. And there was a, a perception, certainly amplified by propaganda, but supported by, by numbers that China was doing better. And so now, as you know, I'm here in Chicago on a, on a I'm speaking at a conference. Uh, we're about to go all hang out in Utah. Uh, now that the rest of the world, people are watching the rest of the world do better and figure out how to live with the endemic, and and seeing this, I want to call it a total failure, but a failure at proportions that no one expected from China at this period of time. There is once again questioning of is. Are you, are you as competent as, as we've been led to believe? I would really like to talk about the relationship between China and Russia. I did not know exactly how to interpret it. And I, I believe you could probably shed a little bit of light. It's, it's a complex one. Um, so th there's not the sort of brotherhood 
that people assume exists between uh, two two countries with with communism so so linked to their sort of modern origin stories. Uh, there were times where Russia was supposed to support China, and they did in like the 1950s. But then in the 1960s, they bailed, and everyone reads about that in their history books. Uh, there, there's a there's a twisted and 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 um, more transactional relationship between the two than than people understand. They're also neighbors, so it's like how we have to be nice to Canada, but Canada makes it easy. Uh, it's not as easy a relationship between between China and Russia. Um, one of the major issues is the issue around dependency. China has massive dependency issues, water, food, uh, obviously energy. Uh, and so trying to delever from the United States over the last decade has been really important. Uh, a, a huge element of the Belt and Road uh, Initiative, which of course includes 60 plus countries, depending on the day, uh, is, is diversifying their basket of dependencies in a way that allows them to, to have more geopolitical control of their, of their fate on the world stage. Uh, the way that China is dependent on Russia for food uh, and for energy uh, ties their hands in ways that does not make them comfortable. On top of that, you have the more ideological issues, which is that in the Ukraine issue, uh, China, of course, sees itself and sees Taiwan. Um, the parallel issues of sort of Western encroachment on uh, what's perceived to be Eastern issues of autonomy. Uh, those are talking points that we will hear from China, hopefully not soon, but when the time comes, and it, it's, it's, a, it's not an if, it's a when, China looks to absorb Taiwan in a, in a more material, less ambiguous way. And the surprise that we've seen, that I've heard from you know, government officials, and it's pretty clear, you know, it's, it's clear in the speeches, it's clear in the text, the surprise at how the old alliances uh, have sort of reinvigorated this idea of the allies that had to a certain extent deteriorated or, or devolved during the Trump era and America first whisper everybody else second. Um, there's been real surprise from China. Uh, and so it's this weird push pull of, okay, we have these dependencies. We, we want to support uh, a non-Western country fighting for its own, uh, issues of autonomy, uh, even if they can't co-sign morally uh, what's happening in Russia. But it, it, it's, it's a more nuanced and confusing issue for politicians in China. Again, also with this election cycle coming up October, November. Final question um, for today. The end of the summer storm, do you have the thought, and I think Scott raised, Scott Booth raised it in the, the session that we had, do you have the thought that as we go towards the election, some of the um, somewhat uh, frenetic and very significant shifts in regulation that have caused a lot of damage to certain business and industries and all, but might've been popular with the people, do you have a sense of how where we are in that? Are we coming towards an end? Do you think will people chill out, or I don't know? What do you think? I'm not. I try not to be an odds maker, <laughs> but I, uh, I've, I've joked with you, Pip, that the odds on on the election outcomes in China, and again, I recognize calling them that is, well, whatever. Uh, those have changed. And I wouldn't say that Xi Jinping isn't still a runaway favorite. I think he is. Um, 
but there's more question marks. It's no longer a foregone conclusion in the way that we always assumed it would be. We, we've talked about how China is great on a long time horizon. Uh, now there's a six month time horizon in, in terms of sort of proving your worth to the people. And mm -hmm. on that time horizon, I worry, I think there's a lot more opportunity for volatility and poor judgment from the government. Um, and so when I'm thinking about, and when I'm, you know, with the companies that I work with and, and in a sort of more professional setting, I would, I would not be able to, with any degree of confidence, say there's not going to be more volatility coming. There's not going to be more heroic regulation coming. Uh, there's not going to be more uh, upheaval coming in the next six months. Um, I just can't. Like, there's nothing to. There's there's no sign that that would be in the government's best interest. Um, and and when people have their backs against the wall, or there's a feeling that that there is a back against the wall at all. Um, people will do desperate things. And I don't want to, I don't want to make it seem like the CCP is losing control. I don't think they are. Um, but it's, it's, it's more dicey than I've seen it probably in my whole, in my, you know, since 2010, when I first, when I first stepped into China. We have this phrase being long-term in a short-term world. And it seems like over the last 30 years, China has been able to steadily play a long game <clears throat> while everyone else was just kind of frenetic, frenetic, quarter to quarter, government budgets, do I hit my mark, do I get reimbursed, all that type of thing. And so in a sense, the wild cards around Russia, the wild card of COVID, while it did make China look you know, better for a long, long time early in this, are probably wild cards China really didn't have to want to deal with. They were gonna kind of win the long game anyway. And so how they're working with these near-term, short-term issues is reasonably, um, I can understand it being somewhat volatile. It, in some sense, if you live in a short-term world all the time, you may not be good at the long-term, but if you're living in a long-term, it may be hard to do the short-term. It's, it's a really interesting point. I, I, I think China has great ability to pivot, uh, but as with um, any, any organization where power is, is hyper-focused at the top, uh, it's also more dependent on judgment uh, than than we like, and people can judge wrong. And like this, this failure in Shanghai has has been so head. It almost feels like sabotage. It's been so bad, and that's its own like wormhole of 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 weird political infighting in China that we're not going to double click on today. But um, it it's concerning. And if you're if you're looking for less volatility in China, I wouldn't I wouldn't expect it in the next six months. There's there's just too many question marks. When I was editing this conversation, I paused and replayed and paused and replayed a specific segment just to make sure that I could mark it down for myself as a more constant reminder. And here it is now in case it's helpful for you too. I just wanted to call it out. It's when Zach says, we project what we expect the citizenry ought to feel in response to these sorts of approaches in ways that do not serve us as analysts and as people who are trying to understand perception in China. It's a great reminder to pause before we put our own overlay, our own mostly Western mindset and cultural beliefs onto an entirely different culture with a different set of beliefs. If we're extrapolating out from there and making investment decisions on it, we might find ourselves in tricky places. So thanks for listening. <laughs>